Waiting for confirmation. We're live. Okay, uh, welcome everybody to the Tuesday live stream. Sorry for a bit of a delay right there. We, we've, it might be a glitchy tonight. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. If uh, if one of us pauses or we glitch, we'll work through it. We'll work through any tech issues we may have. Uh, but today we're going to talk about something that never ever stops happening. It happens especially around Christmas and Easter. And people start to uh, suggest that you've been lied to about Jesus. Like you don't know the truth about Jesus. Um, you know, for instance, Mary Magdalene, maybe he was really the special wife of Jesus or the secret disciple of Jesus that had secret teachings of Jesus. And we've seen this in things like the Da Vinci Code movies like Mary Magdalene with Joaquin Phoenix, right? Who, before he played the Joker on the big screen, big screen, he was a Joker as Jesus. <laughs> and then, and then uh, we've seen it on stage, literally stage productions. Here, I'll show you guys one before we head into this. This is, uh, this is a stage production in New York where Jesus has a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. This stuff is not, um, yeah, it's not unheard of. It's in the news articles and it's overblown in news articles. I have several news articles. We'll share a couple with you later. And now here's the part that gets tricky. There actually are some ancient documents that do talk about some sort of special thing about Mary Magdalene that we don't see in the gospels. And so we're going to talk about all that stuff today. We're going to get into get into it in great detail. I want to welcome uh, my friend uh, Wesley Huff. Uh, Wes, welcome back. Hi, thank you. Great to be back. I hope you can still hear me. I, I do hear you, and you haven't frozen as far as I know yet. So we'll hopefully be able to move forward with that. Um, Wes, uh, tell us, introduce yourself if you don't mind to those who have not watched you in the previous interview we did. Yeah, so I'm a Canadian. Uh, I live in Toronto, Canada. I'm a student at the University of Toronto in Biblical Studies. And I work for two organizations, one of which is the Canadian version of CREW. It's called P2C, Power to Change. And then I work as an associate for Apologetics Canada, uh, writing and speaking. And, and so, um, my my day job, if you want to call it that, is that I'm an itinerant uh, that does apologetics work. Uh, up here in the north. The north-north. The north-north. North. <laughs> That's pretty far north, actually. From my perspective, it's Southern California. So, um, yes. Uh, all right. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to get into the details about um, ancient documents about Mary, um, all that kind of stuff. And Wes, is, he's, he's the guy in the know. He's the guy I'm bringing in to, to talk about this in... Uh, in great detail. So Wes, why don't you get us started in this conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, you hear this typical uh, conversation in the media or whether it's from, as you mentioned, that, that uh, Mary Magdalene movie uh, or the Da Vinci Code that, you know, there are these gospels that are um, lost and that there's this suppression of Mary in the. Uh-oh that actually show that Jesus had just a second. We, we lost your audio for a moment. I think we did anyways. You said we, we see in these, in these um, early and we're calling them gospels that that's what they're referred to as. Um, but they're not in the Bible, right? These are extra biblical works. And we see in them something about Mary. Uh, we lost you after that. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. That, that, that Mary has some type of relationship with Jesus, uh, particularly a, a romantic relationship. So, 
if we're talking about the the Mary Magdalene of history that we know about from the Bible, I mean, this character, Mary Mary Magdalene, is mentioned 12 times throughout the canonical Gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you open up a Bible, that those are the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus's life that you're going to find. And um, she's mentioned by name in the context of uh, the the women who were at the tomb. Um, and are you still hearing me? I'm still hearing you. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting reports that our video is not in link, in sync with our audio. Just so you guys know, that's not something I can actually fix with my software here. There's some kind of network issue. And we're going to have to move forward as is for now. I apologize. You may avert your eyes if it, if it drives you nuts. <laughs> we can we can blame that on my Canadian internet connection. Uh, it's that's probably what, we'll what it is. Um, Canada. So Canada. Oh, Canada. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so we have Mary, this character, Mary Magdalene, and she's an interesting character, uh, because she is, is in reference to Jesus's teaching ministry. Uh, she also was there at the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. She's one of the individuals who go to the tomb with the other women. And so, uh, she's a, she's a, a relatively, well-named character in the canonical gospels. And she has this qualifier of uh, Magdalene, which could re refer to her coming from uh, the town of Magdala, which is a, a fishing town down the Western shore of the sea of Galilee. Uh, so she's this character in the Bible. And yet there's some, some extra biblical meaning outside of the Bible stories that, that mention her in other uh, apocryphal writings and uh, apocryphal just means anything that's outside of the canon outside of the, the official books of the, the new Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are a few references to her in, there's a document that's called the dialogue of the savior. And it's a, it's a very fragmentary uh, contribution of, uh, if individuals have heard of the Nag Hammadi library, um, that's where uh, a couple of books, the Gospel of Thomas is one of the most famous ones in the Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, but there's also this other sort of fragmentary document called the Dialogue of the Savior. And uh, it contains a section of text that includes conversations between Judas and Thomas and Matthew and Mary. Mm -hmm. um, there's another document uh, that's known as the Pista Sophia. Well, uh, which contains that, 64. Is, is, there, is there anything in that dialogue of the Savior that <clears throat> that it says about Mary that's relevant to the discussion today? Um, about Inside about her, does it say something about who she was, her relationship to Jesus, something like that? Not really. And a lot of these other documents, they're very fragmentary in nature. The reason I mention it is because a lot of this literature comes from a group known as the um, the Gnostics mm. and the Gnostics were this, this group that came, uh, they had this idea of Eastern mysticism and they sort of incorporated other religious worldview perspectives in it. And one of the theories is that, um, the Gnostics actually had the true version of Christianity, you know, that you have this Orthodox community, they have their books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have the Gnostics and they have their books Things like, you know, the, the Dialogue of the Savior, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel um, of Judas, Gospel of Peter. And that they also lay claim to a, a valid form of Christianity. And so the, the reason I mentioned the Dialogue of the Savior 
is because a lot of these books, they, they, they elevate Mary as a character who knows what's going on, who has, uh, uh, gnosis, secret knowledge, uh, over and above other characters, the biblical gospels would say are the, the individuals who are the closest to Jesus, particularly Peter. Mary Magdalene is almost pitted against Peter. Um, Mary and Thomas uh, are often pitted against Peter in a lot of a lot of these writings. So we see sort of echoes of that in the dialogue of the Savior. Uh, we see that uh, in the other document that I mentioned, the Pista Sophia, um, which contains 64 questions, uh, sort of back and forth between some of the disciples, some other individuals, and Jesus, 49 of which are from Mary. So the majority of the questions are from Mary. So once again, she's capitalized as this like key player mm-hmm. in the Jesus community. And that, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Um, okay. So here's the, here's the thought. And, and what we, what we frequently <clears throat> see, and I've seen it a lot online, uh, this isn't going to be like probably as much in this, as much, at least in the scholarly world, but online, what you see is um, that what you sort of mentioned that some people think, Hey, these Gnostic gospels, they're offering us not only a different uh, vi- vision of Christianity and of Jesus, but they're offering us like perhaps the real one, like the more authentic mm-hmm. version. And we're sort of rediscovering the truth about Jesus uh, 2000 years later. Boy, look what, you know, archaeology and digs have, have un- un- uncovered the reality of Jesus. Like, for instance, he, he Mary was a secret disciple with secret teachings and he has... Um, uh, you know, his conversations with Judas and the gospel of Judas and things like that. Now, there's a lot, though, that the common person doesn't really understand about these Gnostic works. And mm-hmm. one of the things I think they don't understand is when they come from. Uh, people mm. think, oh, they're really early. So then they kind of are parallel with the New Testament. Like they're sort of fighting for the attention of Christians in the first century. But wh- where are these Gnostic texts actually coming from? When do they date till? Yeah, so they start in the second century and they progress. Uh, so you can go as early as the middle of the second century with a, with a document like the Gospel of Truth or the Gospel of Thomas. Mm-hmm. But even then, anything that has a Gnostic flavor, we know when Gnosticism started to infiltrate these Jesus communities, incorporate Jesus into the Gnostic thinking, and it's the second century. So already, if anything has a Gnostic flavor, it's too late to be connected with Jesus and the Jesus community within the first century. And all of these individuals who have these names associated with them in the Gnostic Gospels, so let's let's say Mary, the Gospel of, of Mary is a uh an anonymous work uh that that is relatively late. Um and unlike some of the other gospels, it doesn't claim to be uh, it doesn't claim to be written by Mary, whereas you know the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of uh, Philip, Gospel of Peter, they they claim to be written by those individuals. But let's let's hypothetically uh, say that the Gospel of Mary was aiming to be written by Mary. Well, nowadays plagiarism uh, it looks like me taking your stuff, Mike, and putting my name on it um, because y- you have more insightful things to say than I do, and. I want to pass my stuff off as yours. Well, in the ancient world, uh, that wasn't done as much as what we see in the Gnostic literature as instead of me taking your stuff and putting my name on it, Mike, um, I'm going to take my stuff and I'm going to put your name on it because I want your name 
as Mike Winger to validate my ideas. So, so it's, about, it's about raising the authority <clears throat> of the thing I'm writing by giving it your authority, yeah. putting your name on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we can get confused by some of the names on these gospels. Like, whoa, whoa, the gospel of the gospel of Mary? Like, what are we, the gospel of Judas? The thing is, when we can date these documents too, is too late for them to be connected with the actual individuals uh, who wrote them. Um, so, and this is emphatic. Let me let me state this and underline it. The only gospels or biographies of Jesus's life that get us to the century that Jesus lived are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's a full stop. There really is very little to no argument about that fact. Sometimes there are some people who try to push Thomas. Um, not even Thomas itself, but some of the like components of Thomas into the first century. And almost unanimously, the Academy is like, no, 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 you, you can't do that. It's, it's still too late. Mm-hmm. Um, now, are, they, are they trying so, to make that part of, part of Q? <clears throat> um, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's similar to Q in the sense that it w- it's a sayings gospel. Um, but nobody's really, nobody thinks that Thomas is Q or that it, 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 represents q because q has a a certain um certain structure to it uh although a lot of thomas you can connect to the gospel of matthew in fact um uh, i would argue and i'm not alone here that uh that whoever the author of the gospel of thomas is he's drawing on some of the canonical gospels anyways to come up with content yeah and and you guys you you can find access to these works online for free if you right now just go google the gospel of thomas english you could probably find a real quick english translation and you can just read it for yourself and say oh it seems pretty clear they're taking in many cases taking known sayings of jesus they were reading about in the in one of the gospels and then altering it um, and adding some of their own content. And I, I think that, that that's uh, the nature, it seems, of, of the Gnostic works, is that they were trying to hijack Christianity and import their own things into it. And then they, so they would say, oh, well, here's this, they're always looking for some secret person. Like, here's the secret teachings that Judas had that the disciples didn't have. Here's the secret teachings mm-hmm. Mary had that the disciples didn't have. And the agenda here is, it seems, is to say, we have to have a way of explaining why Christians don't know about these new secret teachings in the second century. So we're going to attach yeah. them to the name of a disciple who doesn't already have like a gospel or work associated with them. Yeah, and I, I would actually, I think it would be interesting for some of the viewers to even go and find. Um, I mean, you can find some of these online. It's not that hard. You, you Google the Gospel of Thomas and you'll find a copy. And just read it for yourself and see how really weird it is. Because <laughs> some of this stuff is really weird. And that's actually the point. Yeah. I mean, the Gnostics were big into the secret knowledge. And if you understood the secret knowledge, well, then you can realize not only that Jesus is divine, but you're divine. That was a key um, a key understanding within Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Not just that Jesus is divine, but actually you have a spark of divinity in yourself, and you can unlock it by the secret knowledge. So you read some of this stuff. Uh, I was reading sections uh, the other day of, of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip for a research project, project mm-hmm. I was doing. And it's nonsense. <laughs> it it. It is so confusing. It's, it's and actually, do you, do you do you have something on hand that you'd like to read to us from one of those? I I think when because I did a study a while back where I actually read through sections and pieces of a variety of these Gnostic works. 
uh, the supposedly banned from the Bible books and all that. And you read it and you're like, oh my goodness, this is so weird. Like it's, it's literally nonsensical um, in some cases. Do you have something offhand that you might want to read? Yeah, here. So I just grabbed my copy of some select Gnostic Gospels. Um, let me open to the Gospel of Philip. Um, he, By the way, you're, you're utterly Christ- frozen on the screen. Um, everybody hears you just fine. Oh, Your audio no. is fine, but you're you're just frozen in a in a in a, in a state of wonder right now in everybody's. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, everyone. I I apologize. That's. I apologize uh, too. Yeah, Canadian internet. Let's go with that. Um, So uh, it says, uh, a true Christian never dies, for he has not lived in vain to inherit spiritual death. He who has great faith in truth has found the real life. This man dares dying to his own self to be truly alive. Since Lord Jesus came, the world has been recreated, cities established and dead buried. When we were Jews, we were fatherless and had only on earth an earthly mother. Now as Christians, we enjoy the Heavenly Father and the Divine Mother. Those who sow in the hard winter reap in glorious summer. The world is harsh winter. Summer is the eternal realm. Let us sow now in the wintry world, so we may harvest in the splendid summer. It is an unworthy to pray. For boons in this winter, wait for the summer that will follow. I mean, What? It, yeah, it's it, it, very esoteric, and that's is. on purpose. Yeah, that's on purpose because the Gnostics were all about um, using really confusing language so that they had mm. only their select few, like elite, in you know, sort of the initiated, would be able to understand what these things meant. When in reality, they probably didn't understand it either. <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's one of the the main points is. Um, one of the main points is that you see individuals, particularly uh, Peter, uh, coming to Jesus and Jesus saying these things and Peter not knowing what Jesus is talking about. But Mary Magdalene does. And uh, the point is that she has the sort of spiritual insight to figure it out and, and Peter doesn't. She has the gnosis, the knowledge. Uh, and th- that was the whole point that you, if you understood sort of the weirdness of some of this stuff. Um, that was how you unlocked the secret knowledge. And Mary is this key figure who continues to do that. So um, why don't we, if you're cool with this, we'll talk a little bit about the gospel of Mary. Um, the, uh, or maybe we should mention, let me see, is that the one that's related to uh, Karen King's little artifact discovery, her, her uh, uh, manuscript discovery? No, that's the gospel of Jesus' wife. But let me back ah. up because we can't go without mentioning the gospel of Thomas. Okay. Because the gospel of Thomas is not only one of the most famous ones, but it has this great line, uh, the last line of the gospel of Thomas. So oh, yeah. the go- when we think of a gospel, we often think of like beginning, um, birth, life, uh, death, and resurrection. But in reality... A lot of these Gospels, like we said before, are are sayings. So the Gospel of Thomas is just 114 sayings. Well, the last one, Logion 114, reads like this. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go forth from us, for women are not worthy of life. But Jesus said, Behold, I shall lead her, that I may make her male, 
in order that she also may become a living spirit, like you males. For every woman who makes herself male shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You got that, ladies? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is sexism or if it's the first transgender operation. <laughs> I don't know if it's... Yeah, ahead anyway, of its time. It's it's... It's just, it's weird stuff. But that same content appears even in the Gospel of Mary, that, that same whole being a man concept. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there was this idea that um, that the the feminine was, uh, it was uh, deceiving. And uh, the creator of this world uh, was a an evil demiurge and was female. And the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so the creator of the physical must be bad. And it was a woman. And so there was actually a, a very strong um, anti-woman uh, undertone in in a lot of this Gnostic literature. Wow. But, yeah, let's go. Let's let's skip to the gospel of Jesus's wife, because that that sort of it straddles the ancient and the modern. And it, it plays into this idea of um, Jesus being married. Um, so th there are a couple of other uh, sort of uh, ancient documents that allude to uh, Jesus having a special relationship. The Gospel of Philip keeps describing Mary as uh, Jesus's uh, koinonos, which means companion. And there's one section that it says, uh, Christ loved Mary more than the, all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the... And then that there's a hole there, so we don't know. Um, but a lot of translations fill it in and and put in mouth because uh -huh. uh, that, that seems to make the most sense. Yeah. Uh, now there there is a an idea of a kissing on the mouth not necessarily being romantic. Um, you know, it, it greet someone with a with a holy kiss. That's that probably whole, the most. She, he treated her like a man <clears throat> concept, even yeah. rather than rather than an intimacy. Yeah, definitely. That that um, uh, greet each other with a holy kiss. That's the most uh, most disobeyed command in the New Testament, right? Especially now, during uh, the whole coronavirus stuff. Yes. Don't greet each other with a holy kiss. Yeah, yes. Uh, Apply it, but not literally, please. <laughs> yeah, maybe six feet away or something. I don't know how that works. Below a kiss. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there there is an idea of there's this special relationship uh, between. Um, Jesus and Mary. And mm -hmm. that really came to the fore with this, this discovery of okay, the gospel let, of let Jesus. Me, let me lay the ground. Cause I have a couple graphics I want to put up on the screen for people to hear. So um, okay. uh, let me see. Here's one of them. This is a news article. Hey, uh, from the New York times, 2012. This is, this is news. They would not print today because it's been, they would retract it, but yet this is what they do. They tend to get a headline and run with it prematurely. And, um, anyway, mm. it says a faded piece of papyrus refers to Jesus's wife. And then you could, you could read on it's, it's the article's fairly positive about it being like, you know, somehow historically viable. Um, here's another article. Um, let me, uh, put it up. There it is. Uh, Jesus had a wife newly discovered gospel suggests. Um, here's another article. This one is from, that's from life science, the website. This is from, um, the Harvard Gazette. And they say, suggestion of a married Jesus. And the picture here is of Karen King. And she was the scholar who pushed this initially, who's holding up the actual fragment itself. And this is uh, this was really big. And it got really big really fast because it's about Jesus and it's controversial. 
Um, and it's just the kind of thing that gets into the news very quick and very loud. <clears throat> and what, you know, picking up from there, uh, what, tell us what happened with this whole discovery. So this, this news broke in 2012. Um, and, and it broke with uh, Karen King, who is at the religion department uh, at Harvard. And almost immediately after its announcement, um, although it made these kind of headings like you're, you're showing, uh, the, I mean, it, it, was, it was a big deal. Um, it, it, there, there were some red flags about its authenticity uh, that came up. And there were, were a couple of different reasons for that. Um, but one of the main reasons uh, was that it seemed, at least the, the text, okay, should, I should back up. The, the fragment that was released, that was uh, published, is about the size of a credit card if you hold a credit card sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not very large, so it doesn't have a whole lot of text on it. But it refers to Jesus having a wife. And um, that immediately was a headline. And uh, actually, Karen King, when she made this announcement, if you look at almost every time they interview her, she she emphatically says, this does not mean that Jesus was married. She says that a number of times. Hmm. She says instead, what this means is that early Christians thought she was married. He was married. Um, So now now this is not on her. Uh, the news agencies, they don't exactly respect the restraint of scholars <laughs> when there's new discoveries because mm-hmm. they're developing headlines and they're doing all this sort of thing. So the implications of the news articles, they're not necessarily uh, to blame for that, but that's that's what people see in the news. Yeah. So uh, anyway, please uh, go on. And actually, Wes, if you don't mind, would you mind logging off your, and then logging back in real quick just to see if that clears up your video? Yeah, let's try that. Okay. We're going to try that to see if it helps. It might. Even temporarily. If it does, it would be great. If you guys have questions for Wes in particular, uh, put a Q in your comment, a capital Q, and then type out your question, and we'll uh, try to answer some of those towards the end of the live stream. Thanks for joining me. All right. You're back. Am I up? Do you see me? I, I see your face. It's moving again. This is good. Nice. I actually pulled up the live stream and saw I'm, I'm like looking up into the distance. <laughs> I'm looking very pensive. It's At not least, a bad. Yeah. Th- there could, could be, be much worse pauses. <laughs> There's, it could be like the half one eye blink going on. It could be also. Yeah, weird, that's right. Weird, embarrassing thing. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah. So tell us again about uh, Karen King had, had said, hey, this is not proving Jesus had a wife, even though that's what the articles in some cases uh, seem to suggest. But she did say it does tell us that early Christians did think Jesus had a wife. And she also had said that this was definitely not forged, at least early on. She made that statement. Yeah. And the reason for that in particular uh, was because uh, the, the, the text reflected a form of second century Coptic. So Coptic is ancient Egyptian. And there are a number of different forms of Coptic. Um, the two biggest ones are, are Sahidic and Boharic. But this was actually a different um, sort of version, if you want to call it, um, of Coptic that reflected uh, a second century dialect. And not only that, but Harvard went through a, a lot of effort to date the, the, the ink. Um, so the, the ink itself, there are a number of different ways of how you date manuscripts. Uh, one of them is is what's called paleography. 
which is uh, the study of actually looking at the different forms of writing because writing styles develop over time. Mm-hmm. So it's like handwriting and, uh, analysis would be like the, a modern. Uh, you know, yeah, and a big. Exactly. And a big part of that is looking at the contents of the ink because you can actually date things from um, when the ingredients of the ink is most popular. It's not it's not 100 percent bulletproof, uh, but it's it's very interesting because as time goes on, uh, this sort of science of ink making develops with it or you can trace it to areas where certain ingredients were were more uh, plentiful or non-plentiful um some of the manuscripts if you go online and see uh they they um like if you look up uh, codex sinaticus which is a famous uh manuscript of of the sort of our or one of our earliest copies of a genesis to revelation text um some of the ink almost looks brown or red. That's because there's metals in it that have actually rusted. Uh, and it would have been black, but now they've they've off-colored because of that. And, and that's because of the content. So one of the things that Harvard did with the Gospel of Jesus' Wife is they dated it and uh, they said, you know, this matches inks that would have been... Um, used in the second century. It's a dialect that's in the second century. Now, one of the... Red flags that actually Harvard early on admitted was sort of um, complicated was that they carbon dated the papyrus, so the material that it was made on, mm-hmm. and the carbon dating came up with the 8th century. <laughs> now, that's unusual um, because you don't have a 2nd century dialect being written in the 8th century. In fact, yeah. that particular dialect had uh, had ceased to exist at that point. So even Harvard was like, you know, we're not sure what's going on, but nonetheless, this is an ancient document. So they kept doubling down on that. The, the, this, the authenticity of it uh, scientifically pointed to it being ancient. So even if, say, it was written in the 8th century, it, it was copied from something that was in the 2nd century and reflected uh, an accurate picture of a second century Christian idea. So they, that's, that's what, what Harvard and, and Karen King, and I don't blame them for, you know, trying to, uh, trying to really stand on that hill, uh, because it, it could look like that was a reality. Now, the problem with it is that there were a, a, a couple of scholars um, there's a guy named Francis Watson and another guy named uh, Andrew Bernhardt. Um, Francis Watson uh, was at he was at King's College in London, uh, in Durham, um, and he pointed out a striking similarity between some of the sections of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Jesus's wife. And he said this looks a little bit too close. Now Andrew Bernhardt uh, revealed that the lines in the Gospel of Jesus's wife. Uh, didn't just correlate to the Gospel of Thomas, but a very specific version of the Gospel of Thomas that was an online interlinear version. So an internet version. Mm-hmm. Implying now, this... that, the, that the way the text got uh, this sort of like second century, you know, characteristics, the way that it got those was because someone was copying it off the internet from a second century text. Yeah, so there was this guy, um, uh, Michael Grondon, 
And in 2002, he produced this interlinear. Now, you, I think you've actually talked about interlinears on your program, haven't you, yeah. Mike? Um, they're like, uh, you have a text. They're pretty common with the Bible, with the New Testament. You can get like New Testament interlinears where you have the, the Greek text and then you have the English text underneath. Now, there aren't too many others of those in for other ancient documents. But this guy, Michael Grondon, in 2002, he produced this, and you can Google it. You can find a, a PDF, downloadable, downloadable PDF of um, the Nag Hammadi Gospel of Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, Grandin Interlinear. It's really cool. But there were a couple of typos in it. And it was particularly these typos that made their way into the Gospel of Jesus' wife. And that was, that yeah. was the clincher, uh, was that the typos that were in the Grandin Interlinear made their way into the gospel of thomas now that is very strange and yeah i think um, i think it i think the implications are pretty obvious <laughs> when you you know you're you know when someone's copying and if you're a teacher you know when they're copying off the person next to them when they not only copy their right answers but they copy the wrong answers too <laughs> that's, yeah that, that's revealing right and when they when they yeah. copy them spelling words wrong you know that that they were definitely copying that person yeah yeah so it was like you had sort of this internal evaluation and an external evaluation so harvard was was really capitalizing on this external evaluation and saying no look this is an ancient document and it reflects this idea within early christianity of these christians that believe that jesus had this wife and then a couple of scholar scholars like i mentioned francis watson andrew bernhardt um uh mark goodacre was another one um, they were saying, yeah, but we can show where this text came from and it came from the internet. So that's a pretty big sign of, of a fraud. Yeah. Um, and now, this doesn't some... mean that, that Karen King perpetrated a fraud. That's not what it no. means at all. It, that's not the implication that we should draw from that. Right. What, what's, but okay. Well, I'm sorry. I, I kind of interrupted you. What where were you going with that? Cause then I have a couple of questions about all this. Yeah, I just think it's it's this very strange, really weird story, and it's fascinating. In fact, Mark Goodacre, um, on his blog, I think he has a ridiculous amount of blog posts uh, about it um, that, that were like sort of tracking this because he's friends with all of these guys who are doing these evaluations. Uh, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar himself. He's a synoptics guy, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, he has. You can go to his blog. Um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but if you if you Google Mark Goodacre, Gospel of Jesus' Wife, um, he sort of tracks the history of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fascinating. And a lot of people were pointing to this for these sort of Da Vinci Code-esque theories that Jesus yeah. had a wife, that Jesus was married. And you even hear it sometimes today. Um, I talk with uh, – um, uh, there's a particular version of of Islam called Ahmadism. Um, and although they're a small fraction globally, there's a, a very large percentage here in Toronto. Um, and the, in fact, the largest uh, Ahmadi mosque in North America is, is just um, a little bit north of where I live. And so they believe that um, Jesus survived the crucifixion, uh, that he eventually uh, moved to India and he had mar- married and had a family. And so they, they point to things like the gospel of Jesus's wife. And they brought this up to me and say, you know, this is proof that some of these early Christians knew about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, if you guys are interested, Wes, I have links to his his website and stuff. He does other stuff on Islam. He's actually had debates on the topic uh, with Muslims before, that kind of thing. So you can check that out uh, on his website. Now, the the thing is, how do we explain the eighth century, you know, eighth century or there or maybe thereabouts um, papyrus? Like, how do we explain that? Someone went through painstaking lengths to forge this. And um, the story, uh, although I, I don't think we have time to go into it necessarily, uh, was um, so the the word for like looking for the authenticity of a document is called provenance. And basically what Karen King didn't do is inquire about the provenance. And and I, I there are different reasons, uh, I think, um, for that. But once the story about the provenance, where this document came from, started to come out, uh, it was clear that it was connected to a few individuals, but eventually it was traced back to this guy in um, Germany, I believe it was, uh, who had a, a background in some of this stuff, in things like um, paleography and papyrology. Papyrology is the, the study of um, you know, the, the material uh, that it's on, whether it's on papyrus or, or vellum or um, different things like that. Um, and so once they figured out, actually, the origin of this came from someone who had some skills, uh, that person went through painstaking length to not only find a piece of ancient papyri, uh, but to find a piece of ancient papyri and then recreate a second century um, text pretty accurately enough to fool quite a number of scholars and go through uh, the, the effort of finding accurate ingredients to make the ink. And I mean, it was, it's, it's a, it's a forgery to rival uh, <laughs> a lot of other forgeries. Now Wes, why would someone go through so much work? What possible benefit could they have for making this forgery? So actually it's, I think there are a number of reasons. The individual who was originally connected to was part of a very weird, almost cultic group um, that uh, did things trying to connect themselves to like they were they were into automatic writing and um, some other new age stuff. So but like I think channeled, basically what channeled writing is another way of putting. It, yeah. Right? Where they where yeah, they, and where they, they think a spirit will come and take them over, which may well mm -hmm. be happening, an evil spirit, and and then they'll write things. Yeah, out like revelations and stuff. So, okay. Yeah, and actually, um, if I if I remember correctly, they were also invo involved in um, uh, the creation of uh, pornography, um, which is uh, and and they had this weird sort of sex cult thing that was happening. And in order to validate a lot of it uh, as having some sort of accurate connection, uh, they they produced this document. Um, now, the the true reasons, I can't get into their head, but if you look yeah. at who these people were and what they're involved in, I think it's not a far stretch to say they were trying to connect their own, uh, not unlike the Gnostics in the ancient world, That's connect the their own wacky it's ideas. A, history repeats itself. It sounds so much like the Gnostics in the second century saying, we have these beliefs. Jesus has tons of authority. Let's mm -hmm. project our beliefs onto him. Um, mm -hmm. how are we going to do that? Well, let's see, Peter, these other, these other apostles are like his spokesmen. They're like the, the guarantors of the tradition. So, um, we need, we need a rival spokesman. And so we even have mm -hmm. like, let me give you guys this. This is from the, um, cause I, I've written out a few notes from the, the gospel of Mary. This is, you know, a late 
Gnostic text. Uh, when was the Gospel of Mary written? Um, Wasn't that like in the 400s or something? Yeah, off off the top of my head. Um, I think I've got I have... an infograph right here. This is an infograph yeah. that was made by Wes. And if you make your screen big enough, you might be able to see it. So it has the Gospel of Mary at 400 AD. Um, and this is like when different texts had been written. Uh, this is a really useful thing. Uh, you make these available and they're on they're on your website as well, correct? Yeah, if you go to wesleyhuff.com, um, there's a resource tab and there's infographics. And I've 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 created all created all sorts of infographics to to help people out with some of this stuff. Uh, and one of them is the one that that um, Mike has up on the screen, which is sort of it's a timeline of uh, the canonical gospels compared to the apocryphal gospel. So yeah, yeah, like you see there, you have Gospel of Mary, four uh, hundreds, so fifth century. Yeah. Okay. So this is one that we we hadn't talked about, but the Gospel of Mary, um, it gives us a great example of, of this sort of thing. Um, the, uh, the 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 make make us like men. This is in there in the Gospel of Mary, chapter five, verses two and three. It says, "Then Mary stood up, greeted them all, and said to her brethren, Do not weep and do not grieve, nor be irresolute, for His grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather, let us praise His greatness, for He has prepared us and made us into men." This is Mary speaking. Um, it talks about how Mary has a special place. Like we, we need, we need someone to rival the, tr the, the true gospels and the, tr and the true disciples of Jesus. So they're going to project their stuff onto Mary. So it's here in uh, chapter five, verses five through seven. It says, Peter said to Mary, sister, we know that the savior loved you more than the rest of women. Tell us the words of the savior, which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary answered and said, what is hidden from you, I will proclaim to you. And then she gets into weird, like confusing, like riddles and stuff. Here's, here's a, 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 this, there's like this journey of the soul. This, this soul goes on like some kind of a journey um, and some odyssey type thing. And this is part of that text. We don't have the whole text. We have part of it. So here's chapter eight verses um, 13 through 24. I'm gonna read the whole thing to you guys. Cause I think that you'll be interested in this. So uh, this Gnostic False gospel is what this is. And it says, again, it came to the third power. The soul is on a journey, right? Which is called ignorance. The power questioned the soul saying, where are you going? In wickedness, you are bound, bound, but you are bound. Do not judge. And the soul said, why do you judge me? Although I have not judged. I was bound, though I have not bound. I was not recognized, but I have recognized that all, that the all is being dissolved, both the earthly things and the heavenly. When the soul had overcome the third power, it went upwards and saw the fourth power, which took seven forms. The first form is darkness. The second is desire. The third is ignorance. The fourth is the excitement of death. The fifth is the kingdom of the flesh. The sixth is the foolish wisdom of flesh. The seventh is the wrathful wisdom. There are These are the seven powers of wrath. They asked the soul, whence do you come, O slayer of men? Or where are you going, conqueror of space? The soul answered and said, what binds me has been slain and what turns me about has been overcome and my desire has been ended and ignorance has died. In a, in a ion, I was released from the world and in a type from a type from the fetter of oblivion, which is transient from all this time on, will I attain to the rest of the time of the season of the ion in silence. 
this is this is the secret teachings of Mary, guys, that they're trying to say really came from Jesus. Does that I mean it doesn't sound like Jesus to you? It doesn't even sound it doesn't sound remotely Jewish at all. I mean, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This is like weird Greek mysticism. Okay, but one more thing. Um, in chapter nine of the of the the uh, the Gospel of Mary, it offers a defense. It, it wants to really defend why Mary has this information that 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 is unknown to Christians and unknown to the church and, and unknown to those who were commissioned to spread the truth of the gospel, like guys like Peter. So in chapter nine, it says, um, "Then Mary had, when Mary had said this, she fell silent, since it was to this point that the Savior had spoken to her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, "Say what you wish to say about what she said." I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? You, you guys get this? This is like what they're doing is they're, we're, we're seeing the debate between the Gnostics and the Christians, when the Gnostics go, we have secret teachings, they really come from Jesus. And the Christians are like, yeah, right. Like the disciples didn't know. And then this text is written to defend that. And as I go on, chapter nine, verse five, it says, then Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother, Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart or that I am lying about the savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, why are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us to preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard this, they began to go forth to proclaim and to preach. Uh, the, the bottom line is, it, it's real clear to me, right? We have weird teachings. We want to pretend that they come from Jesus because he has authority and we're going to, we're going to put them in the mouth of Mary. There's zero historical reason to think any of this is accurate. Um, so, so hypothetically, if the, if the, if there was a gospel of Mary going back to the second century where supposedly she was called Jesus's wife or a, a document about, about Mary, um, and it came in, in this milieu, it wouldn't exactly be reliable, right? When we know people are doing this sort of thing. What do you think about? Yeah, all I think that, that's Wes? a, yeah, that's a key point, Mike, is that um, this particular document turned out to be fake. But if it hadn't, what would it have done to our perception of first century Christianity? Nothing. Yeah. It, it would have told us a lot about what, say, uh, second century Gnostic Syriac, quote unquote, Christianity looked like. Uh, but it, it wouldn't have actually contributed to the historical character of Mary Magdalene, or any of the other individuals uh, that are mentioned in that the section that you read from the Gospel of uh, Gospel of Mary, um, uh, Andrew or or Peter or a- any of the others, uh, we know that all of these things are too late. They cannot be connected with the historical Jesus, and that's that's a key point. That yeah, the Gospel of Jesus's wife. Was a, is a fascinating story and is a, a kind of a flabbergasting story that someone would go to lengths of all of this and then it, it fooled uh, individuals within the academy and then it, it made all these waves and got all these headlines, uh, but turned out to be a fake. That's a crazy story. But if it had turned out to be authentic, well, it wouldn't have 
change the way that we read the Bible. It wouldn't have changed or it shouldn't. Um, historical Jesus studies. No, it, it, it shouldn't. Uh, what it does is it, f- it would have maybe contributed to our understanding of uh, second century Gnosticism. But that's, that's really about it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the, the, the lesson that I see in all this is just a reminder that people in the in the in the news media sometimes in movies in social media and just in real life they get really excited about discovering the authentic jesus whenever Mm -hmm. they're not going to discover that in the bible and the reality is we've got jesus in the gospels that is our absolute best source hands down for who jesus is for the authentic jesus this is our absolute best source if you want to find out who christ is read the bible this is this this it would sound like um oh you know re- this you're just trying to push religion kind of stuff on you but we're talking about here the odd reality that some people are more excited about any Jesus other than the real one <laughs> than they are about the real one and that to me feels more like a spiritual issue than than an academic issue and that's just good history in general mike if you want to find out who someone was, no matter who they were, whether we're talking about antiquity with characters like um, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or uh, Xenophon, Plato, Aristotle, any of those guys, or uh, Napoleon or Abraham Lincoln or whoever you want to mention. You don't go to later stories that are obviously embellished, that have no connection to the people and the places that they're talking about. You go to the earliest source material. And uh, one of the reasons I, I made that infographic um, of the Apocryphal Gospels and and sort of plotting out when we can date them to is to show, you know, the canonical Gospels, they're all coming from within the time frame of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. They're coming from someone who knew Jesus or someone who knew someone who knew Jesus. And this is a, a conversation when the early church is sort of figuring out what we call the New Testament canon, and they're looking at some of these books that are floating around, because the early church knew about them. I, the media calls them lost gospels sometimes, but it's a bit of a misnomer. A lot of the early church knew about these, and the vast majority of the time they're mentioned, especially for a gospel of Thomas, every time we have an early church writer mentioning the gospel of Thomas, He's condemning it. He's saying, "This we know who what, what group wrote this. Um, Irenaeus is against heresies. He's saying, you know, these groups are heretical. <laughs> they have no connection to Jesus. Yep. And so when the church is going through the effort of saying, okay, what are we to make of a, um, a New Testament uh, uh, a new, that comes with these, the written documents that follow up the New Covenant? made in in jesus's blood um what are we looking for well we're looking for something that connects it with an apostle or someone who knew an apostle and unanimously no matter who you read in the ancient world who's discussing this matthew mark luke and john are those all the others they're later they're embellished um even if we we don't know the dates that we do know about them being later. We could look at the early Christian writers and they talk about it. You know, the, the gospel of truth, the gospel of the Hebrews, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter. These are too late. They're too crazy. They don't reflect 
the <laughs> what Jesus taught. <laughs> They're too crazy for yeah. sure. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't. So, um, okay. And if you guys want to hear more, uh, you can go to Wes's website. But also, there's a link in the description, or there will be as soon as I get it from Wes. <laughs> I don't think I got it from you yet. It's it's a lecture that he did on uh, how we got the scripture, how we got the New Testament canon in particular. And so um, maybe you can get that to me as soon as you can, and I'll put it in the video description for anybody who wants to uh, check it out. Yeah, I I can do that to you imminently. I just realized that we hadn't finished that. Okay, so the question, first question we have for today is Mix Dickinson, who says, what is your opinion on church leadership requiring their employees to tithe 10% specifically to their church? I work for a church that just started this rule, and a few of my coworkers have been under pressure to stop giving to other ministries so as to be able to pay 10% fully back to the church. Um, I think there's a word in scripture for that, and it is not by compulsion. And that answers the question. I, I think it's wrong uh, for a church to, dem- let me see, they can say, we want you guys to be an example in this way, but I think it, that it's wrong for them to demand that you guys all pay 10%. Now, I, you know, my 10% comes out of my paycheck and goes to my church. I Yet I don't think that that 10% is required as a percentage, nor do I think you can take an amount and, and forcibly take it out of people's paychecks. I think that that's wrong. I don't necessarily think it's malicious. I don't think that churches are necessarily being evil by doing that um, intentionally. I think, I think that what's happening is they don't understand giving properly. And uh, yeah, Wes, what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think I would echo everything you're saying. I think that, that giving should be an overflow of the heart. Um, I I once uh, heard this this great sermon where someone... So we have these crazy coins in my, my foreign country called loonies. Um, you guys have $1 bills. We have loonies. Really? Uh, literally crazy coins, right? I didn't know. Um, nobody's using them right now because they're all covered in German. Yeah. But um, we have we have loonies. And so the, the pastor actually got someone up on onto the... It wasn't a stage. I don't know what you call it. Um, up where he was, um, and he gave them, uh, he gave them ten loonies, um, and then he said, "Hey, these are these are yours. You can keep them. Uh, do you mind if you just give me one back?" And the person was like, "Do I get to keep the other nine? He's like, "Yeah, that they're yours. I'm giving them to you." And they were like, "Oh yeah, great, okay." And he used that as an illustration of tithing, and and I really liked it that like. God has given you all these things. And uh, I, I agree with you 100%, Mike. It's, it's not, it shouldn't be compulsion. Uh, it shouldn't be like mandated. It shouldn't be taken automatically out of your paycheck. Uh, but I think there is something to say that all of the goodness and, and the gifts that God has given to you uh, are given to you by him. And there should be an overflow of the heart to give back um, what what is just his to begin with. Uh, but I think that should be, that should be a conviction thing uh, between the person who's doing it, uh, not a compulsion thing yeah. uh, by the church itself. Yeah. And the text that we're quoting is second Corinthians nine, seven, which says um, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not someone else decided for you as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not, that's important. Don't not, reluctant, but also not under compulsion. For God, God loves a cheerful mm. giver. So you you can't have someone else deciding for you what you're going to give and how much you're going to give and when you're going to give and then forcing you to do it. That violates two of the principles we have there. The third principle is you don't give reluctantly. 
and if that's going on, if there's selfishness and all that. But I, I kind of assume it's not, to be honest. And maybe I'm naive. I just assume that most Christians, or at least the people following my content, they are generous and they want to give and they want to support ministries. They just don't want to be abused. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's see. Uh, we have another question here. This is uh, more on topic, but I wanted to cover that because I've seen some videos recently. I saw some Kenneth mm. Copeland thing that maybe scratch my head. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, um, this one is from A. Al, who, or who says, um, "What is Jesus's what was it Jesus's wedding that he was at, where he turned the water into wine? The wedding at Cana? <laughs> yeah, the wedding no, at Cana. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. If it was, um, he he wouldn't have been." so much of a background character in the story and yeah. correct me if i'm wrong the the bride and the groom talk do they not because they uh, uh only the, the only one i know of that speaks is the um is the master of the wedding yes the one who's you're like correct the, yeah like i'm misremembering that yeah so but, but yeah. it's interesting when, when mary comes to jesus and she's like hey they're out of wine and jesus says what does that have to do with me yeah that doesn't make sense if it's his wedding <laughs> it has everything to do with him if it's his wedding but he's like what does that have to do with me um and yeah anyway there's other reasons too but yeah no that wasn't his wedding um mm -hmm. yeah and and not to mention the fact that we have no reason to think it was his wedding which is yeah. kind of important uh, a lot of times people and now i appreciate the question who knows who even came up with the question initially that you're asking here uh a al but but it, it, it's almost like when people go like, maybe pot is in the Bible because uh, the, the Old Testament talks about God made the green grass. And you're like, do I really have to prove to you that green grass is not talking about weed? Like in the pot that's a, sense. <laughs> that's a pretty big stretch. It's, it's, it ends up being just, it's hard to unravel such sloppy thinking sometimes. But Cheryl Henning mm. says, was the Mary theory popular before Dan Brown's book, a.k.a. The Da Vinci Code? Well, it's, it it certainly got a new legs with with Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. So, in the da, the Da Vinci Code, there's this idea that um, uh, after the cruci after the crucifixion, Mary was actually pregnant with Jesus's son, and so she f she fled to to Gaul, which is modern day France, and then had a daughter who is named Sarah, and that the the Holy Grail that like the Knights Templar in the Middle Ages are trying to protect is actually the bloodline of Jesus. Um, I think Dan Brown was definitely drawing on some other sources. Uh, um, uh, what, what was the one? Uh, I can't remember the Holy the Blood. Um, I think it's called Holy Blood and Holy Grail. Um, Holy Blood and Holy Grail. So he, he's definitely drawing on the, yeah, that's what it's called, uh, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. So there are a number of different sort of fictional sources that Dan Brown is drawing on. Um, there really was no sort of understanding before that in the way that it, it got it got capitalized, like the Da Vinci Code makes it out, uh, other than these sort of echoes in th this early Gnostic literature. And even then, it, it doesn't explicitly say that Mary um, was Jesus's wife or that they even had a romantic relationship. Uh even even in the, the that section that you read, Mike, um, of the the Gospel of Mary, it just says that he loved her more than other women. Now you can you can interpret 
that as nefariously as you want to, but it actually doesn't say that there is a romantic relationship there or that he, or like the gospel of Philip, that he kissed, um, that he would kiss Mary often on the blank, whatever that is, that in may or may not actually refer to a romantic or sexual relationship. So anything that we context around those statements is elevating Mary to select disciple status. It, yes, that's the purpose. Like if you see what the, what the writer's trying to accomplish with those verses or those statements, it's elevating her status as disciple, not as bride. Actually, it, there's no specific reason to think that it's about that. That's that's like it's just where people are more interested in saying in some people in saying Jesus had a wife than they are in caring about actual the things the Gnostics actually cared about. So the texts mm-hmm. get used out of context. But all right, let me let me take another question. We'll try to make our answers pretty quick because we don't have too much longer. We're going to be online for this, but. Um, are the claims you're talking about considered blasphemy? Um, what do you think? Would you consider these claims blasphemy to say that Jesus had a wife, um, or that Mary was the secret disciple? I mean, they're certainly unorthodox. Um, I guess it would, it would depend on the way that you defined blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, Cause like a really I mean, blas- definition of blasphemy is just speaking lies about God ultimately, or even lying about yeah. anything, actually in one sense. But I think at face value, it's not blasphemy as much as it's heresy. So, I mean, the opposite of orthodoxy of right teaching is heresy, which is, is wrong teaching. And so it, it would, um, I mean, I can see how you could uh, understand it as blasphemy because it's sort of saying something about Jesus that, that goes beyond the meaning of the text and, may inappropriately say something about who Jesus was during his lifetime. Yeah. But I think I think at face value, I personally would say that's less blasphemy and more just heresy. <laughs> it's just false teaching um, that uh, is untrue about Christ and portrays something that um, is is not true about the the earthly person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Yeah. All right. Well, here's another one for you, Wes. Um, when trying to convert a non-believer, what evidence is the best to present first? When trying to convert a non-believer? Yeah. What 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 is the the evidence? What, to... Yeah. What's the evidence that you would be like your go-to evidence? And obviously, you have to fill in the gaps because the non-believer could be Muslim, could be atheist, could be New Age, could be Jehovah's Witness. So, um, oh, hold on. Uh, but anyway, yeah. How would you answer that? I think it would depend on the situation. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I do uh, apologetic evangelism with Muslims in particular, but because of my work with Power to Change, um, I do a lot of campus ministry. So I'm talking with people all the time. And How about for campus um, ministry, what would be your go-to evidence for that? Uh, well, I, I think, so I'm a, I'm a biblical studies guy. So I tend to go for, um, the reliability of the Bible and saying, you know, these are documents that are trustworthy. They're true. They, they reflect early eyewitness testimony. And I'm talking in particularly about the gospels and the story of Jesus. And if, if we can see those as trustworthy documents and lay out, you know, internal and external evidences, um, externally with archaeology and some of the other, uh, documents that, that refer to this, a historical character named Jesus, and then uh, refer to these early Christians who believed that there was this guy named Jesus, and that this Jesus guy, if we go to the earliest sources, uh, not only 
um, believed that he was a, a Jewish teacher, that he was the Jewish Messiah, but made further audacious claims, claims to be God himself, and then predicted his own death and resurrection, and then did it, then I think the, the most concrete evidence uh, would be to um, capitalize on the fact that people who rise from the dead have more credibility and authority than people who don't rise from the dead. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. on that basis, whatever you take from that, um, something very strange happened here. And then his followers immediately after that went and proclaimed that message. A lot of them went to their deaths for that message. And we have to do something about that. So there's this question that Jesus asks right in the middle of Mark's gospel, um, almost right in the middle, chapter eight, where he looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And I think that's the question that we need to keep in mind with any of the evidence uh, that we give about, you know, the, the, the existence of God, the origin of the universe, the historical reliability of the Bible. We need to keep it in context to who do we say that Jesus is and what does that mean for our life? So, I mean, I sort of navigated around the question uh, a little bit, um, but I, I often, because I'm not a science guy, um, I have some uh, formal training in philosophy, but I'm not a philosopher. Uh, I'm a biblical studies guy. So I try to stay in my lane, although when questions come up about uh, the origin of the universe, the existence of God, I'm more than willing to um, go back and forth on those. But I think if if the biblical documents and the gospels in particular are trustworthy, not just generally reliable historical documents, although they are that, um, but they're much more than that. If if they communicate something true about who this Jesus guy was, and then if we can um, we can know that those things that he said are are accurate representations of what he said, accurate recordings of what he said, and that he did raise from the dead, predicting that and validating uh, his the, those divine statements that he said as not just the Jewish Messiah, but as God, then I think that raises some serious questions. Yeah. Now, I've actually got an interview tomorrow with Dr. Peter Williams on this topic of can we trust the Gospels? And so awesome. that's, that's tomorrow. Yeah. And he's got an incredible book. I mean, it's so good. You guys should get it. But tomorrow we'll, we'll do the interview format and we'll see if we can give you some details there. I have it too, but it's that on one. Kindle. Oh, <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, Can't we I'm trying to figure out where I am on the screen. It. Can you? you... Yeah. Yeah. A You're close. great book. Yeah. Uh, I have a number of talks on, on my, um, on my, uh, website and my YouTube channel where I sort of synthesize some of the material that he's, mm-hmm. he uses in that, but yeah, you should all go out and purchase that book. Yeah. It's, it's so accessible and so deep and so condensed in it. It's like he spent a ton of research to write one sentence. And then did a whole book like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's so great. Anyway, um, Natasha has a question that kind of relates to this. She says, um, <clears throat> when people say, I only believe some Bible, but not all, how can I respond to that? How do you, re- how would you uh, help her respond to those people? Well, I would want to know why they believe it. Uh, what is their standard for doing so? And then see whether that's consistent. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly... You have passages like First uh, Timothy three sixteen that says all Scripture is God breathed, uh, and then um, you can look at well, what is all of Scripture? What has been accepted as all of Scripture uh, since the the early church? And uh-huh. and simply ask well, what is your reasoning for accepting one thing and not another? 
uh, because of its personal preference. It's because if it's because you don't like some of the things said in, in some of it, or you're uncomfortable uh, with some of the the claims that are made or the history that's portrayed, mm-hmm. uh, then I think that those are very poor reasons to uh, to like or not like or accept or not accept something. Yeah, I think so you should. You're kind of saying start with start with what it is that they say they they do believe about the Bible. Ask them why. Talk about what they don't believe, and then ask them why. And it's in that why they choose to reject this or that that you're going to probably have a, maybe a fruitful conversation because they may they may or may, not, may or may not have even really thought these things out, and um, that could be a fruitful thing. Yeah, I did do a talk. Um, it'd be a year ago now, where someone was uh, came up to me afterwards at, at a university here in Canada, and they uh, they said that they were a red letter Christian and that they only believed the red letters. Um, so some Bibles print Jesus's words in red letters. Yeah. Um, and I, I simply said, well, uh, you know, it's that's interesting because there are some Bibles that print Jesus's words in red letters. But did you know that all Bible publishers print the Holy Spirit's words in black letters? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I would just get a Bible, print the whole thing red, and then just hand it to them and be like, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, anyway, I think we can also, yeah, yeah, I think we can also ask what is Jesus's view of scripture and, and how does that uh, fit into um, what, what they believe? Um, Because if we look at Jesus broken, yeah. um, um, There's a, a, there's a great passage in, in Matthew, Matthew 22, 31, uh, where Jesus is going back and forth uh, with uh, the, the Sadducees. Um, and the context here is particularly that of the resurrection. So they're talking about, uh, if you know anything, there are these two groups that are mentioned in the, in the new Testament of these, these Jewish individuals, uh, this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, Mike and I talked about it last week. We talked about the Essenes and we mentioned them as well. Um, and, and the Sadducees didn't believe in a physical resurrection. Uh, that's why they were sad. You see, I had to fit that in. And, um, Sorry, I've heard that so, so many times and, and used it. It didn't even it, register? It didn't even register. Yeah. Me. Okay, that's fine. Uh, moving on. Uh, no, I'll write it down. No more jokes uh, on Mike Winger. Okay, <laughs> we'll um, and, and so they're going back and forth. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement. Uh, he says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So it's very odd. It's very odd whether you're reading it. Um, I'm just I'm I'm looking at at, a, at the 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 Greek on my screen, and it's just as odd in the Greek as it is uh, in in the English because it should be either have you not read what God wrote to you, or have you not heard what God spoke to you? But that's not what Jesus does. He says, "Have you not read what was spoken?" to you by God. So he holds his audience accountable as if when they're reading what's considered to be Holy Scripture, um, he's holding his audience accountable as if they are being spoken to by God. So I think if we ask what Jesus's view of Scripture is, it's very, very high. And um, on that basis, going off of what they say they believe is Scripture and why they believe it and not other things, I think you can have uh, an interesting conversation and point out the inconsistencies there. Cool. Yeah. I think that uh, we've got, uh, there's a lot more questions. I'm going to try and work through a few really quickly. Um, 
Lots of people in the chat are asking, what is Q? Can you explain it? Is it real? Let me take a stab at at summarizing, which is what I'm more like prone to do. And then I want you to clarify if you feel like I get this wrong. But um, Q is talking about there, there's there's content in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that's similar, right? Well, you know, Luke has some stuff that we see in Mark. Matthew has some stuff that we see in Mark. But there's some stuff that's in uh, Matthew and Luke. It's in both of them, but it's not in Mark. And there's there's two ways of using Q that I see. One is where they, they talk about the stuff that's in Matthew and Luke that's the same, but is not in Mark. They talk about that and they call that Q and they gather all that stuff together. Another way to look at Q is they'll actually say, no, no, Q is an actual source that when Matthew and Luke were writing their works, they had Q in front of them and they were aware of it and they used it to help write, you know, their stuff. And so um, those are two different ways of approaching Q. That was an actual source or we're just referring to the content in common between Matthew and Luke. Does that sound about right? Yeah, sorry. I, I wasn't ignoring you. I was looking behind me because um, uh, I have a couple printed editions. <laughs> I have a couple printed editions of Q. You can actually go online and buy yeah. Q. And I have to be careful here because my thesis advisor for my doctorate is a guy named John Kloppenborg. And he is the guy who came up with what we now considered Q. Um, so we call him Kupenberg uh, because that's... <laughs> so I have to be very, very careful because if he watches this and, and I say wrong. something wrong, then... Um... Right. So yeah, essentially uh, what you said, Mike, is right. So you have uh, the fact that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, they... they are called the synoptics because they use each other to some degree. There's some sort of, of literary connection um, between them. And if you go on the infographics on my website, again, wesleyhuff.com, and go on the, the resource tab and go to infographics and scroll down, I have an infographic uh, where I, I try to chart out how much of each of the synoptics uses each other. I'll send that one um, to you, Mike, as well. And that's what's referred to as the synoptic problem. Um, it's charting the literary relationships among the first three synoptic gospels and, and how they relate to each other. So a portion of Mark, uh, approximately, um, 76% of Mark is 41% of Luke and 46% of Matthew. Uh, so there, there's a connection between all three and then 23% of, uh, Luke and 24% of Matthew are similar but have nothing to do with Mark. And that's what's referred to as as Q. So Q is just an abbreviation for the German word Quelle, uh, which means source. So uh, the understanding is that it re represents a hypothetical source of Jesus sayings drawn from both Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke have 235 virtually identical verses that are not found in Mark. And these 235 verses are collected together in what is referred to as Q. And so the theory is that this could have been another source. I mean, Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, talks about other sources. Um, he said he, he admits that there are, other, there are these other sources, whether he's talking about Mark and um, Matthew. Um, he may very well be. Uh, but he says he's using these. He's uh, interviewing eyewitnesses, and he's drawing up an orderly account. And so the one of the theories is that this Q, this Q source, is one of these sources that that he's using and, and that, that Matthew is using. Now, there are some scholars, um, 
I mentioned Mark Goodacre before. Mark Goodacre has an, an interesting book. Uh, I think it's called uh, Questioning Q, Rethinking Q, something to that effect. And he thinks Q is nonsense. So he's sort of the sparring partner of, of my, um, um, my thesis advisor. Uh, and he just argues that it's all original to Matthew. And so if all, all of it's original to Matthew, then it, it, uh, makes Q, um, uh, non-existent. Yeah. 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 And so so Luke used Matthew. That's why there's, there's comment, you know, and Luke says that he used other sources. So maybe that's, that's, that's the thinking. Yeah. Depending on how you, you date, um, all of those three, but I think it's, I think it's perfectly possible. Uh, I think the, the way that the sayings are laid out um, mean that it, there very well could have been a source. I think it, it, if it did exist, it was probably a written source, but not an oral source by the way that it seems to be portrayed in both Luke and Matthew. I don't know uh, any scholars who still are alive who believe it was an oral source. Actually, there's a guy named Horsley. Um, his first name is eluding me right now. Um, Richard, Richard Horsley, I believe it is. He believes it was a, a, an oral sayings. But other than that, the vast majority of people think that if it did exist, it was a written document and that they used it. Uh, but otherwise, that's a long way of saying exactly what you said before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's the greater information for you guys. Uh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm having a good time. I, I hope you guys, my, my mods don't mind us. We're going a little bit long. We're just, we don't have a ton of people watching compared to normal, but actually part of that reason is YouTube has got all kinds of weird stuff going on with live streams right now. Cause everyone's live streaming and there's internet drag mm. in different places, which might be part of our issue that we're having with your video or we're having, uh, at any rate, I'm not, I don't care about all that. Um, the people who are here, I think we're enjoying this and there's some good questions. I'd love to have Wes have a chance to answer. So. This one, um, and but but try to be quick with it as quick as quick as you can, so we can get to a few more. Uh, what okay. about books such as Enoch, Clement, uh, Clement's Epistles, and early church members, um, and Apocrypha? I'm just reading the text as it's written here. But yeah. what about these 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 non canonical <clears throat> early works? Is the question? Um, how can we discern Holy Spirit inspired texts, and how much weight should we apply to these non canon texts? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things going on there. So they mentioned Enoch, which is part of the pseudopigrapha, and they mentioned Clement, uh, Clement of Rome, I think they're referring to, who's uh, a first century, end of the first century writer, um, who's uh, a part of the Apostolic Fathers. And then he mentions um, uh, the, the Apocrypha. I assume he's talking about the Apocrypha formal or the deuterocanonical books um, that are in, say, the Catholic Bible. I think one of the things we can do is we can look at uh, how the how the jews understood understood what was scripture um and uh, unanimously uh, the, the our old testament is the jewish uh hebrew scripture the tanakh the torah the nevi'im and the ketzabim um and so when we're talking about books like enoch uh they're interesting but i they don't have any connection with what the jews understood as scripture and so therefore i don't think we need to um look at them as as having any sense of authority um it's also complicated because uh, Enoch uh, is sort of a patchwork. There's first, second, and third Enoch, and uh, some of it is in um, Hebrew, some of it is in uh, Coptic, and some or, or Aramaic, and some of it is in Greek. Mm -hmm. And we can't really trace it anywhere earlier than about 200 years before Jesus. Uh, so Enoch uh, was uh, Noah's great grandfather, and um, he lived a long time before 200 years before Jesus. So that's why it's pseudopigraphal, pseudo meaning strange, and pigraphal meaning. Um, uh, writing, pigraphical. 
So it is associated with someone uh, who we can't really trace to that text. Um, I think the the short answer to all that question is that uh, the the Jews understood what was scripture, particularly in Jesus's day. Josephus refers to the books that were laid up in the temple and gives us the number of those books. Now, the number is different than our Old Testament, but that's not because we have different books. It's because they order them in a different way. Uh, we order the prophets in a different way than the, the Jewish canon did and does, and we separate First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. They don't do that. So in early Jewish writings, you see the number 22 or 23. Um, we have 39, but it's the exact same books, just in a different books, order. Yeah. And the and then for the New Testament, um, I think we, we can have strong confidence that the early church did diligence to recognize the books that held authority, not choose the books that held authority, but recognize the books that were handed down to them by the apostle. Because you have, they mentioned um, Clement. Clement was written at the end of the, the, sec the, the first century. You have other writings like the Didache, which were also written Potentially, if we did John, the Gospel of John, very late, in and around the same time as the Gospel of John is written. But the early church knew this. They didn't consider it scripture just because it was early. They had a recognition of books that had authority. And so I think when we look at our 66 books of the Bible, we can have confidence for a whole range of reasons that those books are the books that God has inspired. Yeah. And now the other ones still have value. They have value. But but for Christians who are used to reading the Bible, and if the only ancient works yeah. you read are the Bible, and then you suddenly start reading Enoch, you're mm -hmm. probably going to have a hard time because you're going to be treating it like it's the Bible. And I just recommend you be aware. Um, go read something like Josephus <laughs> that, that you're like, this is clearly not scripture, it's just ancient work um, to kind of warm up to the idea that you can read these other texts like the Didache. It's interesting. It, 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 it talks about <clears throat> talks about how early Christians were uh, were going in Rome were uh, were in, in the Roman Empire were going out to rescue children who were being left out to die uh, by their parents their parent this was their old form of abortion they would wait till the baby was born then they just leave the baby outside on the street for the dogs to, to kill and eat it and early Christians were taking and adopting these children and basically starting the first orphanages in a sense but and this is in the Didache. It's really interesting. It's really neat. I just don't think it's scripture. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, good, good question. Um, let's see. Here's from someone you may know. That's the screen name. It's not someone you actually might know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you know. Uh, how do biblical scholars account for the gaps in Jesus's early life? We know he was 30 when he started his ministry. What was he up till then? What was he up, yeah, that's to, a really... up to till then? What was he up till then? He was a human. And I, um, I read it wrong. It fully was, fully man and fully divine. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's a really good question. And that's actually a question that a lot of the, the Gnostics and these other uh, splinter heretical Christian groups tried to remedy. Uh, because as as the, the person asking the question uh, probably very well knows, uh, and a lot of the listeners know, um, we, we know virtually nothing about Jesus' childhood. There's one passage in the Gospel of Luke that talks about him going to the temple with his parents. But other than that, we really don't know anything. And this uh, mystified some of the, the early Christians. And so there are all sorts of uh, apocryphal tales that develop, which get oh, yes. and end up written gospels. in the infancy <laughs> gospels. Yeah, the infancy yeah. gospels are a, a set of literature that try to fill in those gaps. Yeah. And they're really interesting. Um, <laughs> they're nutty. And, yeah. In fact, uh, a couple of the stories make their way into uh, the Quran. 
uh, which is a whole another story. I have another infographic, apocryphal sources for Jesus and Mary in the Quran, uh, which you can find on my website again. And so I, I outlined that, just the Arab infancy uh, gospel and the infancy gospel of Thomas. Um, so some of these stories are floating around uh, the yeah. ancient world. The thing is, I think how we account for this gap is by looking at ancient how ancient biography was written. And really, um, ancient biographers didn't necessarily, and I say necessarily because obviously there are examples of some of these, didn't necessarily care about your childhood. They cared about what the key events in your life were. So a lot of these ancient biographies, you see really that the, the main part of their life and their death. And unless there's something really key that happens in their childhood, um, it, it it's hardly ever mentioned. And I think the reason we see this in the Gospels is because this would have been understood as ancient Greco-Roman biography. Uh, these were what the Gospel writers, I think, to some degree or another, were doing, were writing, and it, it fits in uh, within those categories. So we can hypothesize why they did or didn't include something. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the reasons that they are capitalizing on, particularly Jesus's ministry, and um, and his death and, and then be, before that, his uh, uh, Matthew and Luke, I'm um, talking about his miraculous birth is because those are the things that the gospel authors want you to know and that are key about understanding who Jesus was. What was he doing before that? No idea. Being raised in Nazareth. That's... Well, okay. We do have a little bit in the scripture that gives us a hint. And it's, okay. it's two things, right? Yeah, we know where he, he was, you know, he went down to Egypt for a time, but then he went to Nazareth and there he was a carpenter. Um, mm -hmm. We have in the text, he's a carpenter. He's known as a carpenter. But when he visits Nazareth, their response to him is very telling. They're like, wait, Jesus is doing this? Isn't he the Jesus we know? His brothers are here, his mother, his sisters, his, you know, like his family's here and, and he's the son of the carpenter. He's a carpenter. In other mm. words... They were shocked that Jesus was producing these miracles. What does that imply about his life up till then? It implies that he wasn't doing anything. Um, that, that he was like a normal person in the sense of non-miraculous as far as people knew about. And he did, it seems from the early the content we have in Luke, that he had great wisdom and insight into the scriptures. Uh, that he had that very early on. But we don't know much beyond that except that he was like seemed like a normal Joe. And they're surprised. His brothers are shocked. They know him well. And they're like shocked when he's doing miracles and they're hearing reports. So I think that, mm -hmm. that, that we do have implications there that he lived a pretty normal life, pretty normal life um, by human standards. And, uh, and that they were surprised when, he, uh, when, he, when his glory was revealed. And, and that's what we see at the wedding of Cana. He's like, my time has not yet come. And yeah. Interesting stuff. Which is another reason pointing to sort of the fabricatedness of the infancy narratives. Because Jesus is, child Jesus is running around bumping into kids. They're falling down dead and he's resurrecting them from, from the dead. Uh, we have these crazy stories that are very outlandish. Um, but if that was truly happening, then why would the people in Nazareth, um, why would his family be so surprised at the things that he was uh, doing during his, yeah. his ministry? Yeah, they certainly would have believed him. If the infancy gospels, the, the nonsense they make up, where Jesus actually kills a child in one of these infancy gospels because the child irritates him. He just kills him dead. Um, but then he brings him back. Uh, anyway, The um, if that stuff had happened as he was growing up, the people in Nazareth would have not only been terrified of him, but they would have received him when he started doing miracles. They wouldn't have disbelieved him. So we have good reason to think you know, yeah. that was nonsense. 
All right. Well, yeah, I, exactly. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna call it for tonight. It's it's been like an hour and a half. So um, let me just say real quick. I just got a message from uh, Dr. Peter Williams. He just I just saw the first part of it, and he said, "Hey, we're gonna need to reschedule the interview. He's got a bunch going on with all the busyness of everything because of coronavirus oh, no. and whatnot. So apparently, we're not gonna do that live tomorrow." Um, I will reschedule for whenever he's available and I can't wait to get you guys that interview. It's going to be really good. In the meantime, Wes, thank you for doing this homework and joining us and talking about this issue. I think the bottom line for us is, uh, stop trying to sensationalize Jesus. He's pretty sensational already. And just go to the gospels if you want to know about the true Jesus and he'll change your life. Yeah. If you, if you want to know what Jesus was really like, I have a, I have a crazy, um, headline for you. Uh, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> it's, That's it. It's unheard of. Who, who, would yeah. have, ah! who would make up such nonsense? I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that this will be on the he- on the cover of all sorts of news articles tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow morning, Newsweek, Times. Uh, turns out, yeah. Bible is best place to learn about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really going to draw in the crowds. <laughs> all right, man. Take care, Wes. Thank you so much. You betcha. Thanks.